0: learning
1: while i was in the southeast because that's real deer biology there i mean you, you know it's not that as you know thousands of acres of corn and soybean fields you got to dig in and do some real real work down there in your opinion what do you think is probably the toughest region to kill a mature buck
0: that's definitely the south i mean it just there's no true funnels there's no through, you know, wood lots, inside corners, there's nothing really to funnel them unless it's kind of man-made. It just no doubt about it. It's the South.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Southeast Whitetail. I am honored to have on the line here Dr. Bronson Strickland from Mississippi State University Deer Lab. Dr. Strickland, thank you for joining me.
2: Absolutely, Mark. Uh, great to be here with you. I look forward to our conversation.
1: I I, I am tickled, pink to be uh, sitting here talking to you we're about to deep dive in some um whitetail behavior which is my gets me going say the least I, you know first things first i've got to ask you i mean you know i i um if people aren't familiar with you they will be after listening to this but i'm sure they are if they're listening to this but looking back at your at your academic background dr strickland okay you're born and raised in athens georgia You got your bachelor's degree at UGA and the master's of Texas, Texas A&M, and doctorate at Mississippi State University. So on Saturdays, what are you doing? Who are you pulling for?
2: Uh, (laughs) That's a really good question. Uh, I, I consider myself a dog two times over. (laughs) Um, so one minor correction to what you said, I, I did get my master's in the Texas A&M system, but technically it was at Texas A&M Kingsville in South Texas. So I'm a Javelina that, so I'm a a bulldog, then a Javelina, and then a bulldog again, back in the sec. So when Saturday rolls around, Uh I typically can root for both of the bulldogs, except about every two to three years have to pick one when they're playing each other <laughs> you know i i gotta tell you i did not know that that was this that that's a separate
1: a separate campus and a separate um even separate mascot the javelinas
2: yeah so so I there's that. uh you know the the main campus texas a&m is at mm-hmm. college station the right. aggies and then that's just one of the, one of their units, uh, Texas A&M Kingsville, and there's several other in West Texas, North Texas, et cetera. But yeah, that, that's a, that's a separate campus in South Texas and Kingsville. And it is a very, you know, uh, applied wildlife, uh, ranch management focused wildlife program, as you it, might imagine.
1: Yeah. I, 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 I met, um, there were a number of people that I met or at least spoke at, um, at the past number of uh, Southeast deer study group conferences that have connections that have been there. And it's, oh, yeah. um, do y'all ever, I, one last question about this at the academic world, you know, people talk about coaching trees, you know, like the Nick Saban coaching tree um, even like Bill Belichick in the NFL. Do y'all ever talk about that? Like in the wildlife biology world, you know, the, the coaching trees, I mean, you've, You've had, I mean, Dr. Marcus Lashley was, was with y'all the other, is that a thing or not? Probably.
2: Yeah. I, um, I, I guess it's a really small world. Mm-hmm. And w- when you think about, um, even within deer management, there's a lot of people throughout the U S that do deer research, but it's a subset of those that I, that do what we would say really applied stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so eventually, especially if you're getting three degrees in undergrad and two graduate degrees, you you kind of end up working for for some of the same people and have some of the same mentors along the way. Yeah, uh, I could say uh, I could see
1: that. Well, if you're ready, let's let's jump right into this. because um, I what I wanted to do is talk with you kind of really deep dive into where we are right now for the most part in most of the, the southeast the rut breeding season. I know, you know, there's some different timeframes when you get over Alabama and close to you, you know, Mississippi. Um, And y'all put out, you know, you being Mississippi state university recently put out something this past week about buck beds. I think it was like 39 different buck beds, Mm -hmm. which for me, I've never been one to hunt. You know, I I, I feel like you can identify some beds where bucks are going to, you know, Lay down in, but I've never been one to like hunt a buck bed, a hunt a general area with a bed. My question is talking about is when does are in heat and bucks are chasing and they're just up and they're going, they're chasing. What what does that dynamic really look like? Because for the most part, most hunters are hunting crepuscular hours, dawn and dawn and dust. Some people sit all day, but it, 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 I mean, is the movement on both the the doe being chased, whether she's receptive yet or not, and the buck chasing it, are those really sinking? I mean, are they just going all day and all night?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's what uh, the evidence certainly suggests uh, most of the time. And so the, the activity of the buck during the peak of the rut is, is I would say, 90 plus percent dictated by, by the doe. So if uh, if a buck is on her, in other words, he has sensed that she is either in estrus or coming into estrus, you know, we got about a two-day period, possibly a three-day period where the buck can sense that she is coming into standing heat. Um, he's going to follow her and whatever she does. And if you've hunted long enough and then, and then with us, we get to observe deer more than uh, most people, is he will be up on her feet if she is up on her feet. If she's moving, he's moving with her. When she beds down, typically he's going to bed down as well, just to be with her, guard her, protect her. And that's part of both the tending process, the courtship process, but also defending that you know, if the scent is in the air and there are other bucks coming in to investigate, then he's gonna, you know, protect her at the same time or defend. And uh, so that was a very long answer to say his behavior is typically going to mimic what her behavior is. So,
1: um, I just have got a couple of questions. So, how, how okay, so. I I guess this goes right into one of my other other questions is um, for the most part, you know, all, all research suggests that a local herd localized herd of deer, wild deer, the does are going to heat about the same time. So let's, and I'm going to use some of these examples because this is pretty common throughout the Southeast. Um, It's very common where I am in South, a lot of parts, of South Carolina. And I think it's, and I think it's a lot of parts of Georgia, too, where we have pretty high densities
0: mm-hmm. that are
1: above 50, 50 deer per square mile, above 75. I mean, my part of the county, we're averaging 170 deer per square mile. Our records indicate that, and in in our farm records are on an average of 200, 200 sits a year for about, for you know, we've been doing it for 18 years. The past 10 years, it's been about 200 sets. But Clemson, our records reflect that. But then Clemson, their extension center, does density studies, studies which they which they which they publish, and that's what I'm really going after. So let's say that you have a a pretty high density, okay, a lot of does. So your sex ratio is probably off. Are those does in those high densities? Are they still going into heat? All at the same time, and then what does that receptive window look like? So that, that that's where I, I I don't really I've never really seen that cover where all of those are going to heat about the same time, but are, are the receptive windows are they are those also syn- syncing
2: up? Um. So you've got two things that possibly can be going on, <clears throat> and this is I would say two continuums. Let's talk about a female's uh, physical condition continuum. If she in really bad shape, really good shape on the average, et cetera. And then we have a, a numerical issue relative to sex ratio. So the things that we know is that uh, a female, a dose physical condition uh, can set back her estrus date. And I'm not talking about months or anything like that, but it has been you know, noted research that when her fat levels are low, she's in poor condition she will probably be coming into her first estrus a little later than normal. So that's one dynamic of a very dense herd, if it's so dense that it's influencing condition. And then you have variation of individuals in their condition. So you could see that the, the peak breeding being spread over three weeks to a month rather than two to three weeks. So you got that dynamic going on. That would be them coming into estrus the second dynamic would be um, when they come into estrus are they being successfully bred that is the numerical aspect of it relative to sex ratio so so during the the peak of the rut that's when the young guys get opportunity by the way is you know you can go down for example to the king ranch that has about as even of a sex ratio, as you could imagine. And even within the buck section of the herd, half of the bucks are mature. So that's about as perfect of a scenario you get, and there will still be yearlings breeding in that population. And it's basically because during the peak of the rut, the older bucks are occupied. They are tending. And you end up having a surplus of estrous does that can be bred by the quote, older dominant bucks. And so eventually if a doe is going through her estrous cycle and there are no available bucks, she's gonna stand for, you know, even a yearling. So that is essentially what is going on when we see high density and high density coupled with a really skewed sex ratio then you can get a very prolonged rut. And if the sex mm-hmm. ratio gets really bad, and this is rare nowadays, but back in the old days, a, a doe may not have even been bred her first estrus cycle. So she will, just like in humans, she will 28 days twenty eight days later, she's going to cycle again and come into heat. And so she's bred 28 days later or keep coming into and out of heat until right. she's bred. I,
1: yeah, I... I I guess I'm ultimately getting at is that, uh, we've been using the, um, the fetus, you know, measurement scale that Joe Hamilton and I think some mm-hmm. other people help, help create phenomenal tool. And I really don't know why more people don't use it, especially, and I I've talked about this, I've written about, especially public land hunters. I mean, you know, if they go out and they, you know, kill some does late in the season, they can kind of figure out where they're, but anyways, that's a, Absolutely. That's a sidebar, but, um, our that data for us and we are we're about um you know latitude um latitude wise is about where we're pretty close to the savannah river site Mm -hmm. which you're probably familiar with that we're we're, Mm -hmm. we're probably uh you're about 45 minutes uh east of that okay so two hours from the coast very similar to that our the peak the our does that we kill in December indicate it's about the, it's about October 24 of 26 in that range when they were the ones that are pregnant, when they got bred per that, you know, measurement scale. Yeah. So in that typically that's, that's when we've been honing in on we've been hunting bucks and we've had a lot of success that week and, you know, but, but at last, so, you know, I, I understand they can cycle back through, but I guess my, the, the question I just asked is that, It it it, it, about the receptive window. Then if that's when a lot of them are first getting pregnant, or that's when the ones we were you know killing are pregnant, how is it that like we're going to see chasing this weekend, and we're going to see it next weekend? Like, like what's going on? Are those just bucks just flying around and they're still kind of jacked up from estrus in the air, but there's not really a receptive doe? Is that what's going on?
2: I I would say that somewhere within on your property and surrounding. So within the the population that there, there are enough females still in estrus and it may only be 5% of the population, Mm -hmm. but there, there is enough at that time to elicit that behavior in bucks to, to continue to look. So just a little reminder, um, Remember, a buck is able to breed as soon as he is in hard antler. So month, a month, or sometimes several months before the rut, he's ready to go. He is physiologically ready to breed. They are just waiting to get the signal that there's a receptive doe. And so I would say in the case you're describing, there is still enough of a signal going on. and you'll even see that in places that may have a more restricted or concise rut that's you know uh you know 75% of it may be within 2 weeks or 3 weeks but you'll still even get some of those like fawn breeding mm-hmm. they might be coming in 3 weeks or a month later well those bucks are right back on top of it i mean as soon as they detect estrus in the air they're they're right back on top of it
1: that and that's a great transition uh, into one of my next questions is um, just just what you said fawns doe fawns that are born um, you know for us in a lot of the south late May first of June wherever it might be um, and they hit is it is it is it sixty five pounds is that when around 65 ish. That's a good, that's a good number.
2: And and it's a combination of, uh, body weight and what we call condition. So basically they're they're fat levels, but it's a combination of that. They reach a minimum body size and condition and it's probably, yeah, 60 to 70 pounds, something like that. So, you know, I've read it a lot of places where, you know, that's a
1: sign of good habitat Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, um, but, at the same time, it's it it, it seems like a there, there's some draw, there's there's some negativity with it. And so what what, what is that? Because if if they're coming it, it at least for us, it seems like when our fondos are coming or are, are, are being bred or coming to estrus, it's it's later on in November um, maybe around Thanksgiving. So if they're being bred later, they're having their fawns later, when they're one, and, um, I mean, doesn't that just put the fawn that they're about to give birth to, you know, quote, one foot in the grave? So how, how does that, like, I mean, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, that, that's what I've read and heard, that it, it's a good sign they're coming to the heat. But then how is that good when they're yeah. giving birth later?
2: Yeah, I would say it as um, it's it's good for the population, It is indicative of conditions are very good, meaning there is a surplus of food and our young of the year in great condition, but it kind of stinks for the individual. In this case, the individual Dauphin, it is gonna be very taxing on her physiologically. There's even going to be the repercussion of you're probably going to have a below average. If she ends up getting pregnant and she ends up having a buck fawn, there may even be a, a lag time uh, and, and some compensation will occur. But there may be a lag time where her buck fawn is going to be below average body size and below average antler size for a year or two. So it, it's it's one of those individual versus population of ways to think about it. Well, okay. So that just,
1: you know, see here, here's my problem with 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 um uh, being able to um have an opportunity to talk with someone like you is that I ask you one question, I get I get the answer, but I have 20 more questions. So at some point we were going to get to I've read this book now three times Strategic oh. Harvest System. Phenomenal book. Thank you. Um I I bought it really, really easy off off Amazon yourself and Dr. Steve Damaris wrote it, heard y'all talk about it. Phenomenal book. Mm-hmm. Well, thank um, you. And it's, there's so many different things in there, but you know, what, what sticks out to what, what you know, what really hammered, was hammered into me is the antler potential, you know, the, and, and how it's expressed, if it gets expressed. So going back to the situation where you have a fawn, that this, this hitting a heat cycle, if 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 she gets pregnant and it is a buck fawn that she gets birth to six months later, whatever it is, um, how does that – I mean, that can't be good for his antler potential, right? Yeah.
2: Well, um, it, it would depend. Um, you could have a scenario to where uh, even though it is a doe fawn and even though she's smaller – Habitat con- conditions could be that maybe she does not struggle. Maybe she does not go through nutritional stress. So it, that is where you would see it, though, Mark, most acutely would mm-hmm. would be those really young females that they would be more stressed. But um believe what you're referring to is the term for it is epigenetics uh, on the animal science livestock side. It's called fetal programming. And essentially what that is saying is it is a signal conferred to the fetus while mm-hmm. in development in utero, and it, it kind of gives that individual the flexibility to fully express its genome, fully express the capacity to be as large, uh, or it's telling the fetus you you better economize expression. And and a, a very simple way to say this would be um, a deer in your neck of the woods, Mark, it, it, it may have the genetics to be 300 pounds, but that's probably not very wise to be 300 pounds in your neck of the wood because of uh, heat dissipation, because of food <laughs> limitations. Yeah. You know, that's where over time, when you see these population levels and the size that they are, body weight, antler size. It is matching environmental availability to to maximize survival and success. So the goal of of evolution is to perpetuate genes and you have to perpetuate genes by survival. So you you, you want to come up with the optimal body size and configuration to live the longest and to have the most children. So it's just a way for. The mother, even though she's completely unconscious that she's doing it, but while that fetus is developing, she's taking in information from the environment to inform, and this is not a genetics way of explaining it. This is kind of the, this is a hunter way, the way I can explain it. Using the environment to inform her fetus genetically, how to express itself. How big do you need to be to match the the environmental resources?
1: I like that. And and that's, That, that is such just a cool side. I mean, just, uh, as a, as a deer nerd, just, uh, you know, read about the book, how they, you know, uh, you know, match the environment, so to speak. And like we said about 300 pounds, no, you know, in South Carolina, there are zero rules and regs about, um, uh, running dogs. So dog hunters. So you probably wouldn't want to be three, a 300 pound deer, uh, with, um, with dog hunters. Yeah, you you can do anything. And as a side note, um, y'all put out um had a podcast, and I forget the gentleman that was on that did that research from a dog hunting club. I think it was like the first of this year. Incredible. And we've got a dog hunting club right next to us. Um, butt's up to us, one of our neighbors. We've got a we we put up a four foot uh hog wire fence years ago just to keep the dogs out. Mm-hmm. You know, the dogs stay out as long as a varmint armadillo or something doesn't burrow underneath and get create a hole for the dog but very similar and they've been our neighbor for 18 years and very similar to what y'all were talking about in that podcast and research we have witnessed ourselves that it's going to disrupt you know the deer movement for that that day but they 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 quickly go back
2: yeah, that's that's right. And and I remember uh, that was Gino D'Angelo, by the way, from the University of Georgia. Right. And uh, um, I know he, he's done a lot of work for that in graduate school. I think for his master's, he did that. But, but there, there have been several research projects at UGA. I mean, even when I was an undergraduate, Dr. Larry Marshington was looking at some of that. You know, the very first times of putting a not a GPS collar back then, but a VHF. Mm-hmm collar and putting dogs on them and and so i remember him saying that back in the 1990s that the chase is on the deer moves the deer typically wins almost always wins uh might get pushed out of his home range temporarily but they'll they'll circle right back that's right um let's see we talked about some high densities
1: one one thing i wanted to get into um about bucks and does And, you know, pretty much every hunter, they probably have a grunt call in their backpack right now, this time of year. They may or may not have a bleak can or something like that. They may or may not have a uh, snort wheeze. But I never really, you know, you hear people talk about grunting at a buck. You know, you get a buck like what's behind you trotting by and they grunt or do it with their mouth and they stop it but can we just dive into, um, you know, when and why do deer make the sounds they do during the breeding season specifically, you know, I mean, like, like when is a doe bleeding? How is it? I mean, what, what, um, and then as far as the grunts, I mean, you hear the buck moving through the woods and I heard one, it was a week ago. I had a big buck flying by my, um, I had a ground blind tight in the woods and he came by flying once and twice. That second time was right at 7am and it was just too dark in the woods, but I could see the antlers and his grunting was by far the deepest, just, uh, just d- d- sounding grunt I've ever heard. I mean, it was almost like a lion kind of beast. Cause most of the time you hear grunt, it's very kind of hollow, yeah. um, and that that's another part of the question is it can, can you hear, are you able to de- determine something about the bug, whether it's behavior, what it's trying
2: to do, or the, even the age?
1: I know I asked Stop. you a lot
2: there. Someone may be able to Mark. Mm. Uh, I, am not aware um, of, of any research that's really looked into that now Um, There may be someone with access to a deer research facility or a breeding pen or something like that that observes some characteristics that they think are repeatable and may be repeatable within the individual deer that they have. But I'm not aware of any general characteristics that you you could plan on with that. I'm sure not. So when a doe bleeds...
1: That, that, you know, that there's, um, I'm sure you've seen the, the estrus bleak can a lot of companies make, you know, you turn it over. What, that is to mimic that she's an estrus or she's in standing
2: receptive. What is that? You know, that is with our deer pins, for example, and with my, when I was working with uh, deer pins in, in Texas for our research, that that was something I never saw. I, I never saw a doe in estrus vocalizing like that. Not saying it doesn't happen, um, but but that's something I never observed, and so I really don't put a lot of confidence in that. Sometimes I wonder, and I'm just this is just a hypothesis that is probably wrong. Um, sometimes I just wonder is uh, that to me sounds very much too like a, a fawn bleat. There's a lot of overlap, and sometimes I just wonder if it that just doesn't elicit a response with the doe, that there is a, there is a fawn in harm's way, and they're responding to it like that. Um, I know people that I trust very well that have used the very device you're talking about and have called in deer and killed them with their bow, um, but it's something I've never really put a lot of confidence in myself.
1: Yeah, you know, I'd ask that question because I've never really heard it discussed. And like you said, I know people that swear by it, but also, I was uh, talking to a friend the other day, and it, and it, we're talking about the same thing. That a lot of times, it it you're you're soliciting a fawn or a spike that maybe yeah. maybe was just booted out of that doe group or kind of hanging around and. Uh, you know, it, it might draw on a buck, but it's drawing a buck because it's maybe hearing what he thinks is a fawn and therefore fawns and doe groups. Yeah. I just, I never really hear, you know, people, people hunters swear by a lot of things. Um, <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> and I, and uh, um, I was joking with someone, um, you know, about, you know, it's like every fall there's like a new, like like an additional study about the moon face. You know, our moon and, and NDA put up one the other, day, the other day and it's just like there's always there's some people that make that do, do mental gymnastics to make something work that they just are just focused on. But I I just um and then as far as grunting, when a buck's grunting, is that just he's he, he's, you know, jacked up. There's dozen and estrus and that's just what um, because you because
2: you typically don't hear them make
0: mm-hmm. the sound. Yeah, breeding
2: season, right? I I, correct, right? Um, and and I don't know, Mark, if that is um I haven't really thought a lot about this, but you know, I don't know if that is just a sound they naturally make when I'm on the chase. Mm -hmm. I'm chasing a doe. Is it for is he alerting other bucks that he's in the neighborhood? Is he alerting the doe that he's pursuing? That I'm here, you know, I'm coming, um uh, coming to court, coming to tend, et cetera. Um, I, I don't know the exact cause of it. I don't know if anybody does, but but they certainly do it, yeah, yeah, they do. Um, so let's let's
1: shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about um what does your deer season look like? I know you hunt. um do you do you have a lot of time during the fall?
2: No. I, I, I do not. <clears throat> so what I've learned over the past two decades, it is it is easier for me to put several consecutive days or a week on the calendar and block it off and mm-hmm. go than me trying to do the, the afternoon now and the Saturday here. And there's just so much in the fall with the job and family, you know, everybody's busy. So I, I've just gotten to where I take about three or four distinct times, and just block me off three to four days, and it just so happens next week is one of those times. So, I'm go. I'm going to be out all next week hunting. So I'm looking forward to that. What What is your um, how do you like to hunt? I mean, I, I you know I
1: for me I I, I will sit on food plots. I will sit on some ag fields. It kind of depends on the time of year, usually early season. Um, but I'm typically not a food plot guy. Now I use them to hunt, but just not over. I right. I, I like to. I, I have an I have an old style buckshot climber. Um it's I'm even it's I think I got it like a 99 or so. Um faces the tree. Yeah, and we and, and we're in a pine farm, so I can hunt anywhere. And I just I just love being mobile, you know, hunting outside bedding transition areas, the the, the between the bedding thickets and our thin burn pines, going to food.
2: Um, what what is your? Do you have a favorite style of hunting? It it, it is very much what you just described, and it, it depends, Mark, on the time of year. And it depends on how successful I've been. So, um, maybe someday in retirement when I can hunt all I want, I, I may exclusively bow hunt. Cause that, that is my, <laughs> that is my favorite. I get the greatest amount of satisfaction buck or doe, you know, with my bow. I, I mean, I just, I just love it. If, if I had to pick one weapon to use from here on out the rest of my life and only one, I mean, it would be bow hunting. I love it. Um, but that said, uh, around here, when it gets to be January, and I don't have the, the, the number of deer in the freezer that I want to have, then I'm always using a rifle to kill, you know, one or two or three more. Um, and usually, kind of like, like what you're describing, usually that time of year, um, I'll, like everyone else, I'll sit on a food plot with a rifle, harvest a doe. Uh, that's more just uh, being Pragmatic. And yeah. it is uh, helping someone out typically that needs uh, does harvested. But my favorite thing to do is what what you describe, being strategic and hoping hoping I know where the cover is at because that can be a real challenge in the south. Where where is cover and where are deer going to be bedded, and then where I think the food is, and situating myself along the way, and that that can just be really really gratifying when you scout a spot, climb a tree, you know, with your climber using a bow feels really good. You
1: you had mentioned the South and and, uh, um, I'm very passionate about, uh, you know, hunting in the South, the Southeast. And, you know, that's why I, You know, I say this all the time, um, That you know, why I I want to start Southeast Whitetail, because I feel like, you know, there's some great content out there, but there's so much hunting content that is, um, you know, produced outside the South. It's the Midwest, you know, it's how to hunt this way and that way that doesn't really, um, that doesn't mesh with our style. Why? is there? Do you think there's a correlation to 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 the many deer research facilities, university level, academic level, deer labs throughout the South, and why they're based in the South, the Southeast? You know, there's a Southeast Deer Study Group, and of course, you know, uh, Penn State's got a great one. I, I mean, I'm not knocking it outside of the South, but there is, without question, a stronghold of you know universities and a, 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 academic levels and biologists. Is that just because that's kind of where it started
2: or or is there, do you think there's another reason for that? I ask myself that question all the time, Mark, when we look. I I don't know. It's a a great question. I I don't know that. I would say a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is history. Probably. Mm -hmm. Um, We have, um, you know, I mean, just, some of my colleagues and mentors from, from way back. I mean, look at what Larry Marshington started at the university of Georgia, Harry Jacobson and Dave Gwen when he was at Mississippi state, uh, Charlie DeYoung in South Texas. I mean, I think it was just some people that in their, their area, uh, deer management, deer hunting was really important. There were a lot of really important questions uh, the state wildlife agencies thought they were important and gave them a lot of funding to pursue it. And I think it just built and built and built. Um, it seems like in the Midwest, there are absolutely uh, past and present people doing uh, deer research there, but it doesn't seem like they do it exclusively like is done in the Southeast. Has there, I don't know the best way of asking this, but in
1: with the w- with the research that you know you're doing, Mississippi State, what they're doing at University of Georgia Florida, and Florida, Auburn, Clemson, is it does, did, does it all? Try I mean, could could those universities or, or could those same studies and research be done? At, at, you know in the Midwest, in the Northeast, or is it just? I mean, are you? I guess I'm trying to ask, or or is it just a just a different? Obviously, the habitat's different. The biological, the 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 expression of genes is different as far as weight and stuff like that. But is it just a different animal, so to speak? Because you're you're you know you've got more hunters, you know, per square mile, and it's, it's more it's it's more dense as far as population of hunters. It's just a
2: I I don't know. Yeah. Um. I I, I will say s- s- this though. So yeah, I, I completely agree. There there uh. There's a lot of the same questions, of course. Um. If you're looking at genetics, for example, um. You know that that's the same across the range. Whitetail. Uh, different questions. So if you get into uh. You know Wisconsin, Michigan, et cetera, further north. Uh, winter mortality. That's a really yeah. really big deal. Uh, You start getting to a different suite of predators. Now you got to start looking at wolves, for example, uh, bear, things like that. So there's maybe some different questions. And then also uh, uh, historically, um, and I don't know if there's a good reason for it other than just this is the way it randomly happened. And it just kind of set the stage for the way things turned out. Um, A lot of the really, really good research that occurred on whitetails uh, in the uh, 70s, especially in the 80s, was uh, state wildlife agency researchers. So a lot of the early physiological research, I mean, one of the chapters that was written in the deer book in 1984, uh, those guys worked for uh, the Michigan State Wildlife Agency. And so maybe, you know, in those cases, they just have, have kept doing the research themselves versus working with the university.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. Um keep keeping along those lines, what what's what's a couple things that uh not not only really put you on the spot, but uh there's Corey. This is Corey Parker. He's my co host. Right on time, Corey.
0: <laughs> um, yeah,
1: sorry about that, guys. Precisely 46 minutes late, but he's right on time. <laughs> well-
0: Better late than never, I suppose. Corey's going? been um, uh, doing great. great.
1: Good to see you. He's been scouting for me. He's got he's got he's scouting a buck that he's gonna put me on his place. All right, yeah, right, yeah, Corey.
0: areas, yeah, for sure. That's actually not a not too far from the truth, but yeah. Hmm. Um, he got tied up down here with one of the guys that hunts down here, and yeah. Well, I well, don't
1: don't say that on air. He you got tied up. <laughs> um, okay, so not to put you on the spot, but I will, Dr. Strickland. What's a couple of things that you you just, you know, when you started your career and when you started, you know, um, in your studies, early studies in in Georgia, that you just never would have thought, you would never would have predicted that, you know, uh, research down the road that you were involved with. And I, you know, one thing that there's been a number of things. But probably the coolest thing that I have that that I've you know uh, you know heard y'all talk about in the podcast is the study y'all did where you sawed off the antlers and then you screw and then you and then you basically switched the antlers on different age. Um, but are, are there some things that just stick out to you that you just never would have thought back in the '90s or whenever that
2: you know you uncovered? Um. Probably this may be really obvious. I, I think probably the the research that and not only us, a, a lot of people when, when you put a GPS collar on deer and especially bucks, uh, this whole excursion behavior
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh shifting their home ranges and just me personally, uh, just year after year hearing from people, that were very dedicated to their trail cameras and their photos. And and I would uh, literally multiple times every year, the question would come in a phone call or an email. What do you think happened to this buck? I get photos of it. And this is the part (laughs) that would really intrigue me was, um, I get photos of it up until this day and I never (laughs) see it again which most people would conclude just like me. Well, that that buck got killed. That's why it's not. But then the next year they see the exact same pattern, that buck up until the day or the reverse would be, we never see this buck until it's always around November 15th. And now this buck's on our property. And all this time, I just thought, well, the buck's in the neighborhood. It's just, he's in a different part of his home range. He's there. But you know, now we see that with these collars that absolutely that buck one week ago could have been in a home range 10 to 15 miles away. Yeah. And we still don't know why they pick up and move. And so it's just interesting that about a third or 25% or so of the bucks kind of have this mobile shifting personality. And uh, it really kind of stinks for management too. There's, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you just got to plan for it. That, yeah, that's I'd, probably the one thing that's been the biggest shocker to me.
1: I always kind of bite my tongue when I hear, uh, you know, uh, you know, someone say my bucks have gone no- nocturnal or they, or, or they've left my farm, you know, they've left my farm and then they get them back on camera. On Thanksgiving Oh, they're back on <laughs> my farm now. And it's, it's like, you know, it, it's like when, you know, if only me and Corey hunted our farm, hunted my farm this weekend, two hunters four or six sets we're, we're we're seeing like a microscopic snapshot of the, what's going on it just people put a lot of weight on trail camera and they just not you know because they're hunting around <laughs> um well yeah.
0: my, my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong i, I guess i am but the excursion well, tip yeah probably typically uh my understanding from the Deer Steward one, and maybe I misunderstood it was that the excursion uh, behavior, they kind of go and then they come back or or you know, what you're seeing from your research, they're they're going for an extended period of time, the different range and then ranging back on, you know, the original farm a different time of year. Is that two different behaviors or is that are they linked where, you know?
2: You're exactly right, Corey, and I, I probably misspoke by using the word excursion. The, the way we typically define excursion is just what you said. It is very temporary. It, it is typically like a, a, a two-day to three-day round trip, and so it literally, when you plot their points on a map, it looks like it, it will just appear to be a loop. So here's all of their points right here, you know, for days and days and thousands of observations. And then they'll, they'll do a little loop and, you know, for several miles. That would be what we would call an excursion. But uh, what the, the, the other behavior would be a bona fide shift. They have literally moved their home range to a different place. So when you plot their points on a map, their home range looks like a dumbbell, there's a distinct cluster of points here, a distinct cluster of points here, and there's there's a corridor or a connector in between yeah. the two. Do That's you
0: see <laughs> their excursion early on in their life versus their shift pattern? I mean, do, you, do they follow along? they kind of go check out an area for a day or two and then say, okay, look, this is a good spot, or is it not correlated at all?
2: We we haven't seen a correlation like that. Um, and that that's really the big question is, uh, is it just something innate with, with some bucks? Is it something they're inheriting from their mom? Did their mom do it? Um, with uh, a, a similar behavior, but with birds, it's called prospecting. And so you'll see uh, a, a mother like... Um, Think of these colonial nesting birds, for example, and where they they share the nesting with with the male. So so the male will actually incubate. You will see the the mother, the female will leave and do these big tours. And and it's called prospecting. And what they have noticed with bird ecology is that sometimes the next time she nests, it might be on a new new habitat. It, so it's so it during the nesting season, she's trying to look, is there someplace better next year? Someplace that might have better food resources, some that's less crowded. And so she's prospecting for the next year. Um, we have no idea why these deer are doing it. And, and Corey, it's it's hard for us to be able to document it because the collars that we use at the most, we can get two years out of them. The, the battery goes dead. So what, what you're describing would be really cool if you could collar them when they're, say, a yearling, even better when they're a buck fawn, catch their initial yearling dis- dispersal, and then monitor these behaviors and then see if they're related later in life. Yeah. But we, we just get a snapshot, typically a one-year snapshot of all these bucks. Yeah, I like that. All right, we'll we'll switch gears for a second. Talk about your podcast
1: that you do, the Deer University with Mississippi State, Dr. Strickland, and and I'll say um, you might not know this. I don't don't know why you would know this, but I your your podcast was the first one I ever listened to. Podcasts in general, I yeah, this is back in 2017. I just never never really got a podcast, and a friend of mine posted on Instagram one of y'all one of your early. Uh, episodes and I was like right up my alley, got into it and I was just off. And then I started to kind of branch off their podcast, but that was back in 2017. Some of the first ones I've, I've listened to very outstanding. Um, I had mentioned to you when we were corresponding through email, number 13, the science of rattling. I have always been fascinated with just calling to me. I might say this too much about different parts of hunting, but there's just nothing more exhilarating and just just a rush than calling in a buck two-year-old three-year-old four five whatever I mean you know you're not waiting at a food plot or a corn pile you do something and it comes in and I had been screwing around with rattling probably like every other hunter in the southeast for, for years ever since high school and I'd gotten where I'd called in some small bucks but that episode showed me a couple things one is that i I, I believe mornings, you know, cold, crisp mornings are, are better. And like, I you had mentioned this. And I think, you know, you were, um, I heard you say on the episode, we're, we're thinking the same thing I was, you sit during the morning, nothing's happening. It's late morning. Then you rattle cause you don't disturb anything, rattle crepuscular hours and go hard and go hard with it. Cause based on what that biologist said, you know, Cause there's, I think only like 10% of like real, just drag out hard fights. And I've had a lot of success and I've had a lot of success. Um, again, based on what he was, what y'all were saying, where it's really, if I have it correct me if I'm wrong, but you have more success early on and then later on right in the yeah. middle, you know, there with, but, uh, f- around our part of South Carolina and then in my in-laws in Georgia, which is just across the, just across the border of the Savannah river. I've had a lot of success. Um, the first week of November, fourth, fifth and sixth, and seventh. And, and maybe because there's already some breeding going on and those bucks are trying to pick up those. Um, but that's, that's a, that's a killer episode.
2: So, sure. yeah. Well, th- th- thank you very much. Um, so I was uh, lucky enough to be able to wrangle Mick Hellickson up to, to do that podcast. But I was also really lucky that I was able to be a part of that research. So I was a technician working for, for Mick. And, um, the, the, really the take home messages. Um, and it it was like you, you said a moment ago, Mark, with we, we, I'm including myself as a hunter here. We, we form a lot of stories, little instances that we turn into cause and effect when it was just something random, it was something random that happened, but we turn it into a pattern. We think, you know, that was the reason. And so back in that time, there was so much mystique, I remember, with how you do the rattling. Mm-hmm. Do you start out and you got to scrape the branches first and you got to tickle the tines <laughs> a little? And then you got to, you know, it's like this courtship, yeah. this dance that you have to do. But it, it was unequivocal that... What mattered was, number one, buck availability. You can have the best rattling sequence in the world. If there is not a buck within a couple hundred yards of you, it doesn't matter. So buck availability, that's why sun up and sun down, you get a greater response is because probability. You increase the likelihood of a buck transecting the audio, the noise you were making with the antlers. You have more rolls of the dice that when you're rattling, a buck is going to hear it when there's 15 bucks moving around your property versus at 10 o'clock when the hunt's about over and they're bedded down, then there may not be one with an earshot. And then the second part of that, which contributes to it, is uh, you got to be loud. You just got to be really, really loud. And we're really timid when we're in the stand. I know you are, Mark. I am too. Like this is awkward. I, I'm letting everybody in the woods know where I'm at, but that that was the key. You got to be loud. Well, you, you can't see my knuckles from here. I, I get I get into and I I hurt myself. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that fall it was um I think it was November third or fourth of seventeen. Um, I was doing a lot more rattling, and I long story short I climbed right outside a um a young pine stand, you know, a couple years old deer bedding, you know, a good deer bed when they're climbed and I was rattling and I had, reached charging out nice. And this is goes to one of your analogies of um, the, like a high school football coach, like recruiting, you know, is when you're looking at bucks, this was a great two-year-old buck. And he would have been a great prospect to be a three and four-year-old. He came busting out really nice eight point, And he came right to me. And I just, I hesitate cause I could tell he wouldn't, he, he was two, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I called him in and he was, he was turned, he'd looked around didn't see a deer was turned around leaving. I'm thinking, what am I doing? You know? And so I shot him and I'm glad I did. Cause it was just that to, to me more of a, that that's, I, I, I just like to get out and hunt them. And that, that's just, um, that was, that was a thrill for me. Um, and that, you know, I contribute a lot of that to because, I remember watching a video like like a VHS video we had at our old deer camp um hunt club years ago, long like I was a kid about rattling. And I think it was filmed in Texas, and it was just it, it taught you a lot, but it didn't really it it wasn't like what y'all were covering, you know, covering it, it it was just a hunter. and when a when a successful hunter talks, it's but he can't relate it to biological behavior and movement. It's hard for me to get confidence in it if that makes any sense yeah
2: especially i, when I they think i saw that same video i think i know the one you're talking about yeah well the, the thing about it, what makes it scientific mm-hmm. is that you are replicating a behavior hundreds and hundreds of times and you are setting up constraints about your methods we're going to do it at this particular time and i don't know if you remember mick talking about it but we had i think four sequences Mm-hmm. But it was to tease apart those very, so we're going to do it softly, you know, uh, to to tickle the tines. We're going to do it softly and for short duration, all the way to, we're going to do it as loud as you possibly can for, I believe, three minutes was the, the long sequence. And, and Mark, you hit them so hard that when three minutes was up, I mean, it was all you could, it was all you could stand you are physically exhausted. It'd be like you trying to punch a punching bag as hard as you can for three minutes. And I remember, you know, cause we would time each other, you know, start yeah. now, stop. And I remember when I would be the ones right, you know, I would just drop them. I mean, you're just, you're just <laughs> exhausted, but, but it was us that, you know, recording every, trying to isolate every variable that we could to, to address those issues. And those were the things that came out and, it it, it's availability the bucks availability and that's why during the peak of the rut well they're tending a doe why am i going to go fight if i'm tending a doe so there's not the availability is not there but then in the post rut now more bucks are available and you get greater response so these this
1: okay so this goes back to one of my early questions when we're seeing you know at least in my neck of woods, we're going to see a lot of tending right now going on. And the bucks you see flying around, they just don't have a doe and they're getting, they're getting knocked off. Um, how close are, bu- I mean, are bucks just right on top? I mean, are bucks giving them space? And uh, well, you've covered that. Look, let's don't, let's don't go. Real quickly is one question we need to to do doe group behaviors. So the pre rut starting, we're going in right in, right in the rut, you know, you get some early bucks that are bumping does off food plots and they're getting harassed, but they're not really in heat yet. Are they just completely leaving their doe group, their fawns um, somewhere? And then they're going off. The reason why I say that is because the buck, the big buck that was just roaring and grunt that flew by me twice a week ago, it was still kind of dark, but there were two fawns that were kind of following that doe around and they were, they weren't really going after them, but they were kind of like chasing after kind of probably trying to figure out what was going on. What, what was, do they typically do that? Or was that doe not really ready yet?
2: You think? Yeah. Yeah. That That's ca- kind of what, what we believe is going on anyway is um, when she comes into, to heat and I'm using mm-hmm. generally when I say heat estrus, I'm talking about that 24 to 48 hour period where She's going to be tended or courted by a buck. Um, she is most likely now. I don't have any GPS collar data or anything to to verify this, but this is you know kind of what we we think and see is that yeah she's going to leave that fawn or those fawns you know in in her home range, and then you know she's going to be courted. She's going to be outside of her home range being chased, and then after she is bred, she is going to come back and then get with her fawns again
1: yeah i just when i witnessed that i was thinking i i wonder if that does really because they they were they were basically following her but they Mm -hmm. weren't really keeping up with it Corey, do you have anything we're we're gonna try to start to wrap this up what you got buddy
0: yeah no i just anecdotally from what you know backing up uh previous points you made um i guess it was what three years when did i shoot that that heavier horned tight rack buck two
1: years ago, twenty two years ago. I
0: I watched that, you know, so I was up in um that pine block just west of the house. Um and I watched a bunch of deer, a bunch of bucks chasing a doe that had just come in heat. They were they were running around, you know, it was really exciting. But I looked over and I saw this this buck about two hundred yards out and he he was interested but he wasn't moving. And um, I said well, okay, well, I'll call him out. yeah, you know, he's just kind of hanging back, and it became very apparent. I threw everything I had at him, and he would look and he'd be interested, but he just wasn't he wasn't leaving this little thicket, and then you then I could see a doze ears behind him, and he sat there looking at me for forty five minutes to an hour, very interested, just not you know not why, committed. Why, why would I come fight right now? I got what I'd be fighting over, you know, so he was uh, content it was pretty neat to watch, you know, seeing all these deer chasing up under me and I'm rattling this deer as hard as I can go. I wasn't even worried about the bucks beside me. And, uh, he would not give an inch, but he didn't move either. I mean, he, he sat there just looking, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty neat, pretty neat to see. And then to kind of hear what you're talking about. Um, because I was the same way. I'm very timid when I'm up there, you know, don't want to really because I don't get busted. You know, I right. think that's a lot of people do, you know, you don't, yeah. you want to be moving. And, uh, I was, at one point, I didn't care anymore. I was just going as hard as I could. <laughs> I knew he could see me, but um, yeah, it was just, just kind of neat to watch. Um, I apologize, guys, for not being here earlier on. I don't know what I missed out on. I'll, I'll get Mark to fill me in. But um, um,
1: he, I uh, assume he gave me some tips on how to kill some bucks this weekend. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you. I'm not going to tell you until after I kill them. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm bringing up some good whiskey, so I'll get it out of you Friday he, night. Yeah, uh, right. Doctor Strickland
1: also told me how to um told us the best way of connecting uh, a climber platform to the climber seat. <laughs> I'm to try to keep. Him. What Corey left project. out is that when he shot that buck, his uh, his his climber platform fell down. It had a rope, but he couldn't yank it back up. So after he shot the buck, I went in there and got him. He's up a tree. I had to go up there with my climber. <laughs> yeah. I've had that happen too. That yeah, was, I uh, <laughs> uh, he, smart, yeah, I got bad
0: feeling. But yeah, he that.
1: he shot it. He shot it with the with with the foot platform down. I mean, it was a, I mean, you threaded the needle. Awesome shot. Well, we got to wrap start wrap this up. Um, Bronson's got to head on soon, pretty soon. Rapid fire, Dr. Strickland, three questions. I asked these asked three questions to 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 everybody. You got some stiff competition out there. Um, on this, uh, the first question is, can you recommend to the audience a book or publication or something that, um, you know, in the, in the hunting world, uh, you know, a lot of people have mentioned, uh, Sand County Almanac, a lot of professionals, you know, have their students read that or there something that, um, you would suggest to someone as far
2: as reading material? Absolutely. <clears throat> I would recommend because I commonly do a book that the author is Fred Provenza. He is a retired range ecologist from Utah State University, and his book is called Nourishment. Hmm. And it talks, his research is based on livestock and their food choices, why they make choices. It translates perfectly to deer. And it is absolutely fascinating. And the more I dig in and now I'm reading his technical articles, uh, had the pleasure of talking to him on the phone. A uh, couple months Ooh. ago. And, uh, it, it is a really, really good book. If your eyes aren't opened with that, with that book, it's your fault.
1: I, yeah, I'll, I'll let you deep dive in that when, when I was talking to Dr. Lashley about, um, we kind of went down a rabbit hole about, um, you know, summertime, the heat, which is a real stress period for deer in the South. He was talking about different studies by cows and mm-hmm. the heat and some of that correlates. Maybe there's some uh cross over there all right second question is um what is just one of your all-time favorites just wild game meal you've got a freezer full of wild game cross the board doesn't have to be venison in your in your house you've been on the road for weeks you get to go home and prepare whatever you want to what's just something maybe your parents made it just something that
2: and and how do you make it um one one of my favorites you know I I could list 20 of them, you know, backstrap on the grill. How can you go wrong with that? Uh, Country fried steak used with the backstrap. How can you go wrong with that? One of my new favorites is, is uh, we call it scapula stew and basically (laughs) deer shoulder, (laughs) deer shoulder stew. And uh, it, it is braising or slow cooking the shoulder, and it's, it's really, really good, first and foremost. But I think why I really appreciate it, very much like a neck roast, is because it is a neglected piece of meat that so many people turn their nose up at, but if it just took a little TLC, cooking it the right way. Uh, and, and what is amazing about it is, it's a piece of meat because of the cooking technique, in either slow cooking or braising, All the stuff that we want to cut off, all the connective tissue in the tendon, you know, all the stuff that we think makes it taste gamey, makes it taste fabulous. And so, uh, I, now I get that shoulder off, you know, of course the skin's off, uh, I do minimal only if there's some bloodshot meat, I don't do any trimming, freeze it up, thaw it out, have my way of putting it in the crock pot. And, uh, it's delicious. It's delicious. I like now, that. Is that
0: like a stew or just like a, like a pot roast type, you know, is it true like a stew or.
2: Yeah. So what, what I'll do is um, cook, cook the meat however long until it's fall off the bone. And so you can literally grab the, the shoulder blade and, and pull it out. And then I will add in the potatoes and carrots and onion and, and stuff like that and cook it for however long until the potatoes are done. And then I'll have my stew. Hmm. But it, like it's that. a good comfort food. I, I feel that way about shanks, about, yeah.
1: you know, saving the shanks and just throw them in a crock pot, put different things in there. All right, last question for you is, you know, um, and I ask these three questions because the the focal points I like to stress for or promote, rather, for Southeast whitetail it, are habitat, conservation, and venison. So last, last question about conservation. What do you think? And it could be about whitetails, could it be about – Whatever. I had someone mention, I think, Snapper, Red Snapper off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. But what do you think is just something that really should be on people's radars conservation wise in the southeast? You know, there, there's a lot of issues going on. I feel like I, I, you know, I always ask this question because I feel like the south gets glossed over. You know, when you see conservation in the outdoor space. A lot of it goes towards out west and you know, various things. But there's we, we, we've got a lot going on here across the board. Um, yeah. it, and even though whitetails are thriving in some areas, some areas, they're, they're a little, they're thriving a little bit too much and a little bit too going. What, what do you think should be on people's radars conservation
2: wise in the Southeast? Um, gosh, I, I guess some things The the first two things that, that came to my mind would be <clears throat> number one is taking CWD more seriously. So that that is that is really gonna gonna threaten deer, period, and, and deer in the southeast. And it's uh it's just very difficult, in my opinion, psychologically, for people to accept CWD because of the the impacts are such long term. They're not immediate, they're not tangible, you don't see it like EHD. So you kind of eh, it's no big deal. And then you start working with some of these places, like now in North Mississippi, and now we hear reports from Arkansas and some of these places where there is an absolute tangible reduction in the deer herd. You know, deer populations are decreasing as as is predicted, and people just don't seem to want to accept that. Um... The other would be, and I think we're doing a really, really good job, I think Craig Harper and Marcus Lashley and others, they've done a really good job, the, the importance of prescribed fire. And uh, and it doesn't have to be a dormant season fire. It can also be a growing season fire. Um, j- just the importance of that, not only for food and cover for whitetail, but so many other species can benefit from that as well. Absolutely. Uh, I, I would just love to see that more accepted and utilized uh, by more people. It's yeah. We the
1: we shifted years ago to stop doing protein pellets. We stopped we, we kind of stripped down our food plot program and started burning more. In fact, you mentioned I, Dr. Craig Harper, Corey and I helped uh, light a fire on my farm with 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 Dr. Harper this past August.
2: Oh, was One, that a deer steward? With the deer well, yeah, steward yeah. too. Uh-huh. great fun. He, you know, he's a character. He's <laughs> quite the
1: character. <laughs> yeah. Corey. Yeah. He, he was, a, he, he was at the farmhouse with us for a couple of nights with Corey and I, we, yeah, he's, he's quite the character. Really, really good guy.
2: Corey, do you have anything else before we wrap this up? Mark, Mark I, I have a question for you based on what you just said. Did you see a difference in any way, positive or negative when you stopped the supplemental feeding and shifted to more burning was there a drastic decrease in body weight, antler size, spawn production, or in do you think that the prescribed burning completely filled that gap? Actually, um there's
1: there's a ton of stuff like that that I would really like to 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 look at our records. and we had those records for the deer steward and and we do average about 200 hunts. Um, we're killing about 60, 60 deer a year on our farm. Um, our dough weights have been going up. Our dough weights have been dropping down. We're in a high density area. Like what you said, mm-hmm. our dough weights have been going up. They would drain our protein pellets just like everyone else. They, they find it, but it's every deer is not eating it. Um, our, our huntability, as y'all would talk about, Dr. Craig Harper, our huntability has gotten better, you know, being, being mobile, when you're rotating the pine stands and you're burning, you you are creating good natural movement, you know, and travel corridors. Our, we've been shooting big, bigger and better bucks and we've been, um, our dough weights have gone up. And i tell you something else, our wild quail have just exploded. We've always had, ever since we had the farm, we've always, we've always had some wild quail in that area, but a little bit you know, here and there. Corey can attest to this. Everyone, that deer, that that it was really cool. That deer steward was August, the first week in August. And that was about the last week the quail were calling. And they were just, I mean, Dr. Strickland, they were calling when they were in the classroom, the outside classroom. They were uh Kip and Craig were running chainsaws and they were they were whistling. They were we were burning and they were whistling. The quail pot, the wild quail, we don't release quail, I just exploded. Um that That's has great. been a, that has been a major um major thing. So yeah, we've um and, and when you when you factor the cost of the protein pellets mm-hmm. and then the cost of burning and then the production, I mean, there is no, no comparison. There's yeah. no comparison at all. Yeah. What it, will break your do you heart, have
0: more quail than wild turkey? What's that? I thought you say you have more quail than wild turkey. Yeah, the
1: I the very first night when Craig got there and he you know, he had been on the road for a while, I, I told him that we had more I personally thought we had more wild quail than wild turkeys. Because we do. We don't have that many terms. We got a lot of wild quail. You hear him, see him everywhere. He just kind of laughed at me. But I think
2: at the end of the weekend, I think he realized I was onto to something. Yeah, yeah. What, what will break your heart, though, Mark? Because um I, I can tell it means something to you uh-uh. is hear, hearing quail. You know, yeah. it, it, it's therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And p- people my age, you know, your age, I know you're younger than me, but... You you hear that, and you've been hearing it since you were a kid. Um, we have students now, undergraduates now, and it'd probably be the, the same in South Carolina, Georgia, Auburn, e- everywhere. Um, they'll they'll come through and hear a Bob White for the first time, and they don't know what it is. And that That's, just yeah. how common, how iconic, and common that sound was. You didn't have to be even be a wildlife person you know it was just you you heard a quail but we have young people coming through now that have never heard that sound that just shows you how uh the forests are managed how our landscapes are changing and how infrequent and rare quail are that most most people don't even know what they are
1: absolutely yeah uh, it's well guys thank you thank you Dr. Strickland I appreciate this and thank you for your time this has been a blast absolutely it really has um Corey's going to let all the sink in and he's going to kill a big buck at my farm this weekend. Right, Corey? Indeed. Tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon or Saturday morning?
0: <laughs> tomorrow afternoon. We're going to kill one tomorrow afternoon and then uh, try to kill a doe with a bow on Saturday morning. So, right. I'll
2: I'll be expecting a picture. <laughs> Send it to me. Well, thank you all
1: very much. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you again, Dr. Strickland. Uh, where can people find you?
2: Um, we're uh, on all social media platforms, uh, MSU deer lab on Facebook and Instagram and, uh, our YouTube channel. We're really trying to build that more. So MSU deer lab TV, YouTube channel, I think we have, we have podcasts on there and also about a hundred videos. So a lot of information there that's free to consume. It, It is. And I'm not just saying
1: this, uh, because I have you on, um, but by far, Mississippi State University has been my favorite uh, as far as content-wise. I mean, you'll have an incredible website with publications. I haven't mentioned this, but you're the uh, – I, I know you've been involved with it, but the Southeast Food Plot Planting Guide, I have been using that ever since we've had the farm. I mean, that is just phenomenal. Um, you'll have an app for your phone, the podcast. I mean, it really is very – there's a ton of free content for people out there. And there's just no excuses if someone's not, you know, consuming it. So thank you again for your time and what you do for conservation. Yes, sir. Happy to help anytime. Absolutely. Y'all be safe out there. Make sure to always know your target before you pull the trigger. Good luck.